Okay. And we are rolling. God, we're rolling and he leaves. He's rolling. All right. We tried. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager with Fireside Chat number 326. And you just saw with thine eyes, Mr. Tubbs walked out as soon as I began speaking or even a moment before. Look, he's still a puppy. That's the that's my wife's assumption. And one day I hope he will join me in the fireside chat. It's a chance to share with you some of my thoughts about life and what's going on in the world and take your questions. By the way, I was on Pierce Morgan, who is one of the most widely viewed hosts of a talk show in the world, uh, in Britain. And you might find it fascinating to, to see me on the show talking about the Middle East, the man from the left. So I'm just letting you know, easily found, I guess, if you just put in Dennis Prager, Pierce Morgan, and that should do it. There is an amazing thing happening. Well, there are so many amazing things happening. That's doesn't help. But this is among the more amazing from one of the three major United States airlines. There's United American and Delta United has announced its CEO has announced that they are reserving 50 percent of their pilot positions in their pilot schools and for ultimate employment as pilots, 50% will be women and people of color. So obviously blacks and whoever else is considered a person of color. I am so disturbed by this that Though I have been a frequent flyer on United, really frequent, I have almost a million miles, not just flown, but in reserve that I could use towards upgrades and free tickets and so on. And I am on a very high status in their airline, but I am for American and Delta too. I just fly constantly. And uh, I've had no issue with United, but I will not fly United if I can help it. Often, unfortunately, you can't help it. To get to a place, you will have to fly a certain airline. If you are in the United States and you are in Minneapolis, you pretty much have to fly Delta. We have a system in America called the hub system. And if your airline has that as a hub, then uh, you're, you're pretty much stuck with that airline. So, Why am I so annoyed? They are playing with a life and death position. The idea that pilots will not be hired on the basis of merit, but on the basis of color and sex should bother you. And you know, I am not easily frightened. That's frightening. How could it not be? I'm choosing the person in whose hands Hundreds of lives are regularly uh, found, located, and I, I, I am being told that that person may not have been chosen because he or she was the best? Wow. What if a hospital announced 
that from now on, half of our surgeons uh, will be people of color and women. Would you, if you had a choice, go to that hospital for a surgery? Of course not. In fact, here's, here's the proof. If you're a woman or a person of color, you wouldn't go to that hospital for a surgery. After all, blacks and women are, are as interested in competent surgeons and pilots as anybody else. I mean, that, that's a given. It gives you an idea of how ideology trumps common sense, trumps excellence, trumps concern with human welfare. This DEI, known in America, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I mean, it, it, it's bad for anything, but it doesn't matter at the university because the university is already awful. And it's not a life and death issue. If, if my teacher is an incompetent, it's sad, but it, my life is not at stake. But if my surgeon or my pilot is incompetent or less competent, that's a big deal. So I, I say this in the hope that uh, those of you who uh, live in America and watch the fireside chat will let American Airlines know, excuse me, United Airlines know that you, when you will have the chance, you will not fly them. I am giving in my Visa United card. I'm going to get another card. Uh, I'm not going to be using that any longer. The Believe me, if enough people respond, as they did, for example, with Bud Light, uh, when it decided to use a, a trans individual uh, as, their, uh, as a spokesman, uh, it, it backfired and they, they were demoted from the number one selling beer, Bud Light, into I don't know what position, but no longer number one. They, they learned a lesson. Uh, it is important for the airlines to learn it, this lesson so that no other airline copies United Airlines in saying that we will no longer choose pilots based on competence. You know, to give you an idea, of, I don't think I have to give you an idea because I think it, what I've said makes sense to every one of you. But what if this were applied? And obviously, it is not nearly as serious because, again, it's not a matter of life and death. But what, what if we applied this to the National Basketball Association? You know, it's, it's way, way overrepresented in terms of population by blacks. Uh, we are going to uh, have reserve half of our uh, basketball team to whites. Now, if, if, here's the interesting thing. If some, if some team announced that, everyone would object. Everyone, whites, blacks, it wouldn't matter because anyone who cares about sports wants the best possible team on, on, on the field or in the stadium, right? I mean, that's, that's the way it works. No, nobody cares about the racial composition of the team they root for. They care about whether their team they root for wins. It's so self-evident. So why really, why, what difference is that really when you think about it? It, it? If airline pilots are not demographically represented statistically, surely National Basketball League teams, association teams are not at all 
this race preoccupation is the preoccupation of people who are not preoccupied with serious matters, but they want to feel that they are preoccupied with serious matters. It feels good. It must feel good to somebody at United Airlines, certainly its CEO. Uh, we are we are making a great contribution to the battle for racial equality by determining pilots on the basis of race and sex. They wouldn't say sex, they say gender. Somebody made a very interesting suggestion. It's not mine. And the only reason I say it is I never like to take credit for an idea. I am not the, to the best of my knowledge, the source of the idea. And they said, listen, why doesn't United Airlines, in light of its commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and its, its commitment to far more the people of color and women in, in the flight, uh, flight deck or co cockpit, as it's known in the vernacular, why don't they announce to anyone who books a flight, as soon as they know, they send you a picture of the pilots of that flight. United is so committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, we'd like you to see your pilots on your next flight. Why don't they do that? Not an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. They should be proud of it, but they won't do that. Now, why not? We all know the answer because people will, whereas now I wouldn't care, right? I mean, I'm telling you, I don't care because I know I don't care. When, when the pilot of my plane is a woman, that's obviously a, a small percentage of the time, but it has happened on my flight. I couldn't care less. I fall asleep at takeoff, no matter who's the pilot. If the pilot is black, I couldn't care less. The pilot is Hispanic, is Asian. It means nothing to me, but it will now mean something to me because until now, I would have assumed they were chosen on merit, but not because of the immutable characteristic of their sex or their race. So, you should write to United Airlines and say whenever possible, don't, don't curse, don't yell, just say whenever possible, I will not be flying United. I want the best possible pilots. I don't want you to choose pilots based on any criterion other than excellence. Please do that. It will make a difference. All right. All good. Now to our question. Hi, Dennis. My name is Somi Voorhees, and I'm from Northridge, California. My question for you is, if you could go back in time and visit any decade with the influence that you have today, what would you say and why? All right. Well, so this is a very interesting question. First, I've never encountered a Somi before. Have you? No. Have you? Have you? So that's a first. So if I, you were here, I would ask you, I always love doing this on my radio show. Whenever I encounter a name I've never heard before, never seen before, I say, how did you get that name? Anyway, Somi, thank you for the question. I've never encountered the question before. When I first heard it, I thought you were going to say, if you can go back to any decade in history, 
what would you go back to? Which is a completely interesting question um, in and of itself. But you asked, a, uh, I think, a more intelligent question than that, a deeper question. With the same influence that I have today, if I could have it at that time, what decade would I go back to? That's, that's a very interesting question. So here is my instinctive answer, and there might be a lesson to be learned here. My instinctive answer is to go back to the moment after the assassination in 1914 of Archduke Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, it killed by a Serbian anarchist, terrorist, whatever term one wishes to use. And that led to World War One. World War One is arguably the greatest single calamity in history because World War I was not only horrific in terms of loss of life in World War I, it led directly to communism and Nazism. If there were no World War I, there would have been no Nazi regime in Germany and there would have been no communist regime in Russia. And the result of Nazism and communism is the greatest concentrated amount of slaughter and evil in history, all because somebody shot somebody in Serbia in 1914. So if I could go back and I could, I had the same percentage of ears or eyes that I have today, first of all, I'm not sure I could have done anything. <laughs> <laughs> it, the more I read about the origins of World War I, the more it seems people just in, inexorably ended up in this massive war, both sides thinking the war will be over by the end of the year and that they will win. And instead, it slogged on, let's see, 15, 16, 17. When did it? I think it ended, it ended in 1918. Whole generations of young men, young idealistic men were slaughtered. And as I said, uh, then we had communism in Russia in 1917, direct result of World War I. And then we had Hitler 15 years later and the Nazis in Germany. It's, it's so painful to think what World War I led to. Here, here, is the, here is a lesson. How could I have stopped it? Let's say I had twice, three times the influence then that I have today. What would I have said? You know, if you, uh, if you go to war with each other, if uh, France and Russia, you go to war with Germany, uh, please understand, or in England, you go to war with Germany, you're going to lose your generation of young men. Nobody would have believed me. They might have thought I was a lunatic. But I would have said, hey, I've come from 100 years from now. <laughs> I, I know what's going to happen. Then they'd be certain I was a lunatic. We don't tend to believe in time travel for good reason. It's not possible. So I don't know what I would have said 
if, if I had the ear of all these people to have stopped them from their march into war. But that's, that's what I would have tried to prevent and probably quite unsuccessfully. Fascinating question. Sean in North Carolina, USA. Hey, Dennis, I heard your fireside chat a few weeks ago when you interviewed your son about his drug slash alcohol addiction. If you folks missed that fireside chat, it is really one that will fascinate you, my younger son and I, and talking among other things about his uh, about with addiction. He's now seven years sober, married, does his own podcast. It's called AP Unfiltered. Aaron Prager is the AP, AP Unfiltered. And he's quite a remarkable young man. He was born to a meth addict. His, his late mom and I adopted him at birth. We did not know that she was a meth addict. By the way, I've never said this, but here's an interesting thing. Let us say I was told, you know, the birth mother is a meth addict. She was 16 years old at the time, by the way. What would I have done? Would I have said, oh, I'd rather adopt a child from a non-addicted birth mother? And if I would have said that, then I wouldn't have had him as my son. And with all the pain that existed over his addiction, the joy that I have with him now, I would have been deprived of. And by the way, he would have been deprived of me. See how we think we know the best and sort of know the future in that sense. Because birth parents, I know a lot about adoption, birth, uh, uh, adoptive parents are told if, if it is known that the birth mother is addicted, then they're told and then they, then they say either that's okay with us, we'll deal with it, or that's it, too big a burden, can we have a child where we, we assume the mother is not, the birth mother is not addicted. So I want you to know the interesting thing, and I've never, not, I've never said this privately, let alone publicly. I'm glad we didn't know. Isn't that interesting? We can maximize the odds in life, but we're, we can't shape the future fully. It's not in our hands. Anyway, it's fascinating. You didn't talk much about your own experience as you observed your son deal with his many problems over several years. How did you, that's me, Dennis, handle it as a father? How did you go about your daily life and work during this time period? In general, you're a very upbeat person. How did you keep a smile on your face during this time period? Were you able to compartmentalize dealing with his problems versus the other parts of your life? Must have been extremely hard as a parent. Thanks. Love the fireside chats. Sean in Mount Holly, North Carolina. I'd love to answer your question. And I, I say I love to, I'd love to, because this can help a lot of parents if, 
if they can do this. I have said on my radio show for many years, parents must not allow their joy of life and their happiness to be held hostage by a child. And I've been tested. This is not advice that I give theoretically. I was, as you note, quite tested. He, he was uh, addicted for about eight, eight years or so. And they were very, very difficult years. But I, I, did, I did compartmentalize. That is correct. It was, it was a, an ongoing pain in my heart. That is correct. But I did not allow it to prevent me from enjoying life from leading a full life. It was tragic. Tragedies take place. I have one life to live. And here's another thing, because this is a big belief of mine about happiness. Remember, my theory that is that happiness is a moral obligation. We are obligated to act happy, at least act happy, and hopefully be happy for others' sake. He wasn't my only child. Didn't I owe it to my other son to be a happy and, and love of life father? Isn't that an obligation? Didn't I owe it to my wife? Didn't I owe it to my friends? Didn't I owe it to my listening audience? I have a lot of obligations in life, and they're not just to one individual, one child. Parents need to think that way, and they need to think of it irrespective of those things about themselves. You owe your life a full life. One of the sayings I, I truly don't like is this famous saying, you cannot be happier than your least happy child. Wrong. You have chosen not to be happier than your least happy child. Virtually everything in life is a choice. You choose whether to be happy. You choose whether to lead a religious life. You choose whatever it is. You choose to be courageous or cowardly. It's all choice. And people don't think of it that way. They don't think you choose whether to marry. You choose whether to have children. It's all choice. And I chose at a very early age to be a happy human being. It was a great choice. This was, this was a sadness. I, I, I can't deny it. I mean, let's, say, let's say that in a, an auto accident, I had lost a leg. That's a pain. It's an ongoing pain not to have a leg. No question about it. Would, would it have depressed the rest of my life? No, I can tell you now. That I, I would have been cheerful me without a leg. <laughs> one leg, Dennis, is what I would have been. I have one life to live. I'm not going to give it up because of a leg or because of a child or because of whatever it might be. Now, listen, I understand that there is something obviously worse, and that is a child who uh, dies. That, thank God, has, 
or thank luck or thank whatever. It did not happen to me. It certainly could have. As my, as Aaron has so often said to me, addicts end up in one of three places. They end up either sober, in prison, or dead. And I know, I know young people, friends of, friends of mine who lost children. There's no, there's no pain like that, in generally speaking, in life. And yet, every, every parent I know who's lost a child has figured out a way to still embrace life. It doesn't happen immediately. It can't happen immediately. It shouldn't happen immediately. You need a grieving period. And it is an ongoing pain. They never lose that pain. But they are able, in every case I know, let's put it that way, to embrace life. So I lived, I didn't live through the loss of a child, thank God. But I lived through this pain. And yes, I, I did compartmentalize. I have a chapter in my happiness book, Happiness is a Serious Problem, on exactly that, the need to compartmentalize. And if you say you can't do it, it's not true. You've chosen not to do it. What's our timing? We're at 25. Good, we have time. Next. David, 19 years old in the Netherlands. Most of the questions today are not from the U.S. as it happens. Hello, Snoopy and Megan. That is hilarious. Snoopy and Megan. The most consistent. You, know, you should have put Megan and Snoopy just for the record. It's, uh, <laughs> this is for Dennis. Oh, that's hilarious. The hello is for you too, but this is for Dennis. I have listened to your podcast and have gained real insights and appreciate your great work. However, uh-oh. By the way, it's almost inevitable. There's an opening compliment, and then I know from the radio, however, or but. I was listening to Fireside Chat 324, where you began by addressing a news article about an image of an eye being placed in surgical rooms to give the surgeons the feeling of being watched. You use this as a prime example of the necessity of God. I truly believe that people need God, and furthermore, that there is a God. That makes you rare for a 19-year-old in the Netherlands, unfortunately. <laughs> However, that article greatly worried me because to me it was very reminiscent of Big Brother is watching you in George Orwell's book, 1984. In the book, a picture of a man staring at you was put up on the wall to give citizens the dreaded feeling of constantly being watched. And the experiment of Australia a country which did very Orwellian things during COVID sounded just like 1984 to me. What are your thoughts? You, you're a sharp guy, David, in the Netherlands. That's impressive. I'm, I'm serious. To know how Orwellian Australia got during COVID, that alone. So here's my answer, and I suspect you'll like it. Since you agree that, remember, I, I, Use that example to teach the importance of the belief that God is watching people so that they behave more decently. I didn't do it in as a as an argument 
to put up an eyeball <laughs> or an eye in surgical rooms and everywhere else in society. I used it to show how effective it is if people think they're being watched in inducing decent behavior. That was the reason. And here's the beauty. It, the more people think God is watching them, the fewer eyes we will need. There you go. If everybody in surgical rooms thought God was watching how they spoke and acted in the surgery room, there would be no need for a human eye when the divine eye is watching. So that's my, that's my argument. A 77-year-old woman, anonymous. I want to know what use is a dating site? What is wrong with American men? None of them seem to be interested in a permanent relationship. So I'll tell you, you will find this. I don't know how you will find this, but I suspect you will find this at least interesting, perhaps annoying, <laughs> and perhaps uh, helpful. I don't know. But every, virtually every man I speak to, certainly uh, over the age of, let's say, 50, has the exact same lament. Why aren't American women interested in something permanent? <laughs> uh, so I think it's the old uh, battle of the sexes here. Many, many men and women uh, are, are, are interested and many men and, men and women are not. But uh, I, I, I don't doubt that it's not easy for a woman of your age to find somebody through a, through a dating site at this point. I, 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 I understand that. But it happens. It's a, I, I always get a big kick out of people who tell me, oh, my grandmother, she's on her third husband. <laughs> so people will think, oh, boy, she's must be difficult, or fourth husband. And I'm thinking, she must be quite a catch. <laughs> if she's still attracting men at 86, that's pretty damn good. <laughs> that's my reaction to it. <laughs> Don't you agree? Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, I want to meet these women yeah. who are still attracting men when they're in their 80s. I think that's very impressive. And by the way, I believe it's quite possible. I meet women, I will tell you this, it's probably the last question time. So I'll tell you a very interesting little uh, anecdote here. So I, I frequently, I mean, maybe 30 times a year, I speak at some uh, dinner event. So I, I am at it, obviously I'm seated at a table during dinner and then I speak. Very often it has happened uh, or even just during the the uh, period, uh, almost before every speech, there are people who pay a little extra so that the group that brought me can raise more funds. And I will take pictures with these people. So very often, uh, a, a quite attractive woman uh, will say hello to me, very often with her husband present. Sometimes I don't see the husband. Uh, and maybe there is no husband. And uh, she will say, oh, you know, um, I have uh, three grandchildren. And I look at the woman and I say, and it is not to be nice. 
I say because I am being real. You're a grandmother? I, as I always note, that's not the way my grandmother looked. To be perfectly honest, grandmothers today have definitely upped the ante in looks compared to a, a couple of generations ago. Uh, but uh, there, there is, at this point, there is almost no year limit on a woman remaining attractive. It's, it's, it's a combination, as it always is at any age, of genes and how much she takes care of herself. But uh, that, that's really a, a good news with, with all the things that are available to people and the nutrition that we have and so on. So I, I wish you, obviously, good luck. Well. As usual, a lot of good stuff, which reminds me to remind you that it is worth listening or watching to any of the fireside chats, because I try to put in a lot of important stuff in every one of them, and it's impossible to remember everything that's said. And to try to have someone young that you know watch this or hear it as well. Because they're not getting wisdom at school. That, unfortunately, I can assure you. Okay, see you next week. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.